Final word story time with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon as we ready ourselves to go into the sheets, the spreadsheets of cricket history <laughs> and tell some stories along the way. Hello, Jeffrey. <laughs> oh, well, a lamb in the streets, a tiger in the spreadsheets, you know me. <laughs> Let's, uh, yeah, this is the thing that we do on the weekend. We get into cricket history, we look at stories, we talk about interesting people and we do it all thanks to the pointers that we get from our wonderful listeners what a thing to do what a time to be alive i was grateful today when watching devon conway make Mm -hmm. his way to 200 so at a place where we are it's the t interval day two lord's test match i'm at home jeff's in melbourne Mm -hmm. but we've taken this opportunity to record the Storytime podcast on the thursday afternoon my time but earlier today uh, watching that Fairly remarkable double hundred that we mm. had people in our in our comments, final word listeners in our comments saying, "Oh, mm. this I know this bit. I know that Tip Foster makes the highest score because they've they've learned it on Storytime. Mm-hmm. They've been part of our journey. Uh, mm-hmm. They've been part of this story. This part of this show. How much more does the name of Reginald Erskine Tip Foster mean to people now when they see it pop up on a list? They think, I know that. Absolutely. I know, know R. E. Foster. I know his nickname. <laughs> you know." It, well, it came up on the television broadcast, didn't it? I think uh, Athers put it to Rob Key. You know, what was unique about him is that the, the only player to captain England in football and in cricket, sort of living the dream in both mm. professions. But, yeah, I thought that was nice that today, being the 50th story time, a milestone of our own, mm-hmm. uh, that we'd have something that was happening in front of us that drew together a number of the threads of conversations that we've had over the last year or so. It's kind of funny that mm-hmm. we started making story time purely as like, like I think we when we first started doing it, it was because we had the off weeks from calling the shots when we weren't mm. having a calling the shots episode go out. Like what we'll do is we'll, we'll we'll roll out an old interview, we'll do a bit of nerd pledge, and that became story time quite mm. quickly. But yeah, a year on, it feels like not just for us, but for lots of different people who listen to the show, it's been quite a fun experience. <laughs> it's been an accidental experience, which. I think is how you could describe most things about the final word and how it has developed. It's always been like, "Eh, why don't we try this? Okay, why don't we do it completely differently the next time? All right, now we'll do it completely differently a third time. Oh, it's turned into something else. Yeah, that feels about right. And in terms of our target, by the way, Mm -hmm. uh, which we've been talking about on Storytime in recent Mm -hmm. weeks, James Anderson picked up two wickets in England's first innings, well, New Zealand's first innings, but Mm -hmm. England's first with the ball. So he's on the 6-1-6. And because uh, since we last made Storytime, we've had a change of month. And as we've explained Mm -hmm. before, when the new month comes around, credit cards in the usual way uh, get... um, come to the end of their cycle so we lose some patrons but we've added some more and now we're behind jimmy again after overtaking him last week jeff yeah we're 610 trailing 616 so if you've ever wanted to send a nerd pledge to the show now is the time get those numbers happening and i like this i like that the you know the game is afoot there's that bit in um have you ever watched the great escape I know we've talked about Steve McQueen on the show before. I, I, mean, uh, I, I mean, I watched it as a kid. I'm, I'm very much familiar with the concepts as well. Mm. So there's a moment where, um, you know, the Germans get wind of the fact that a bunch of these prisoners with their forged documents and so on are, are on a, a train pretending they don't know one another. And once they've realised that, that the hunt is on, there's, um, I think it's, I think it's um, Richard Attenborough, the late, the brother of Sir David, who just leans into one of the others as he walks past and says, tally-ho... 
as if to say the hunt is on, the fox has been loosed, you know, the the dogs are coming. So, you know, that's 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 what it's like. The um, you know, in a, in a non-murdery animal sort of way, the game is afoot. Well, tally ho to you, Jimmy, if you are listening. Unlikely as it is, so we are <laughs> after you. The, Probably the a bit busy, on. to be honest. He is. This this someone said to me yesterday something about. Uh, a reference to a tweet that I put up and why hasn't James Anderson liked this? And I thought to myself, he is playing a test match right now. That might have something to do with it. But anyway. You can stay busy during a test match. Kumar Sankakara knows about that. <laughs> yes, well, that was, uh, yeah, when, when he had his phone out during the lunch break, it was during a county championship game rather than the test match because, of course, you can't have your phones in the dressing room yeah. uh, in a test match. If you don't know what we're talking about, it doesn't matter. Send us a DM as Kumar tried to do that day uh, and didn't, as it turns out. Now, uh, you had something else to raise, Jeff, in the uh, in the intro. Yeah, so just the, the, I forgot to mention this last week, and it was such a good little um, snippet that that I couldn't bear to let it go. But we were talking a lot about Marcus Triscothic bowling in Test cricket, and the one time that he took a Test wicket in Pakistan in oh god, what was it, two thousand and one or thereabouts. 2000 ish so 2000 yep yeah would have been 2000 and we talked quite a bit about a few of the sort of australian players of that era Stuart law martin love adam gilchrist um we talked about sean young before as well this 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 little thing that bobbed up which i hadn't realized and i'm not sure if you're aware of it did you know that marcus triscothic took a first class hat trick I did not. I mean, I know I know he bowled quite a bit for Somerset, but I didn't know that he had a hat trick to his name. Tell us about it. <laughs> he took a first class hat trick in 1995 playing for Somerset against a team called Young Australia, <laughs> featuring oh, really? who else but Stuart Law, Martin Love, uh, Ricky Ponting, <laughs> Langer Hayden, etc. All in that side, and the hat trick that he took started with Sean Young then went to Adam Gilchrist and then went to Joe Angel to finish it off. Um, which, and considering that we'd been talking about Gilchrist and Triscothic bowling in the same story time show, I did mean to bring that up as, as my final little cherry on top, but I forgot about it. But, yeah, how do you like the fact that Marcus Triscothic rolled up, knocked over Sean Young, who'd already made 100, Adam Gilchrist had already made 100, and then Joey Angel in his next over to pick up three on the bounce. First, uh, only one test wicket ever, but a hat-trick in first class cricket we're pretty sure that we have joe angel's australia a helmet from 1994 95 mm-hmm. so we found i think gilly found the helmet on on ebay or some no it wouldn't have been gilly it was found for us on ebay in fact i think mm-hmm. it was my friend andrew anson found it and he brought it to our attention and and sent it to us but based on how big the helmet is and we yeah. went back and looked at the photos and the coverage from that season, I think Angel was the only player to bat without a grill. So by you know by deduction, mm-hmm. we we realised, and it was a huge helmet, so it kind of has to be Joey Angel's. And mm-hmm. Gilly has worn it in the nets a couple of times at club training. So uh, um, a link back to the final word that way too. A little bit like wearing your Australia lid with a bit of masking tape over the crest. You know? That's right. That's right. Although in in this case, wearing an Australia A helmet it was it was a point of pride uh, when he was at club training. I'm sure. Yes. Um, so you know, pop that one in your back pocket um, if you ever run across Marcus Triscothic. You can ask for the story of his hat trick. I will. I certainly will. Uh, Jeff, let's get into the meat and drink uh, of our episode this week. Let's play a little game called. Mm-hmm. Nerd 
Pledge. That's Nerd Pledge. It's a game we play with people on our patron page. Because making this show now takes us a lot of time, people have to help support us while we do that. And uh, people throw into the bowl, not their keys, but uh, some change in an amount of their choosing. Uh, But the amount relates to cricket in some way. And we have to work out what the number behind the contribution means. For instance, this week... Both Dan Walsh and Alistair Wilson have sent through the amount of $4.19. Now, this might mean completely different things for Dan and for Alistair. We don't know. $4.19 could be 419 could be 41.9 could be all kinds of permutations on the number. In some way, 419 means cricket. How? This is the challenge for us. Well explained. Keys in the bowl might be a very different kind of live show that we could do one day. Not that I'm saying that we should. Colin de Granholm's just walked into the attack as well. I tell you mm-hmm. what, he'd love to throw his keys in the bowl. Dan Walsh uh, is would the it, first. Would it involve Rob Key <laughs> somehow? <laughs> I, I don't really know how to handle that question, but I, I'm, I'm just, just going to let that sail straight Rob, through to the wicketkeeper. The way Rob Key in the bowl. Zach Crawley should have. <laughs> yeah, let's just leave it well alone. Hi, Rob, if you're listening. Uh, Dan Walsh, 419, uh, is going to be all yours, Jeff. I'll come back and talk about Alistair in a moment. Just before we get onto that, to give an idea of just how sadly our minds are preoccupied with cricket all the time, every time I walk past one of those kind of uh, handy, like shoe repair sort of locksmith shops and they have a big sign in the window that says key cutting. I just visualise Robert Key playing a beautiful square cut. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so look. He should have got a mention today. I I kind of um, lament the fact that I was doing the Guardian's live coverage through the Conway innings and I didn't mention uh, the double hundred that Rob Key made. So, I mean, Mm. he has one test hundred. It's a double made at Lords Mm. and now it's the same for Conway. They share that. And it wasn't brought up on TV, surprisingly. It should have been and it should have also been on my radar. But now it gets a belated mention on the final word. And as um, various eagle-eyed, listeners have pointed out Devon Conway has gone past Curtis Patterson with the highest average Mm. in test cricket for now at least until the second innings right let's do the number 419 419 well I thought of bowling analyses foremost because there's a particular one that jumps out there are some numbers you just know without needing to look at and this is one of those one of the true classic stories of cricket the story of the honourable Alfred Littleton who played four test matches in the 1890s. Like Tip Foster, he also played for England at football, one of those amateurs of the era, very good at supposedly all ball sports, great at tennis and, I don't know, probably croquet and whatever else they were doing at the time. He always gets named in records as the Honourable Alfred Littleton because he later became an MP. His father was a baron. His mother's father was a baronet. I don't know what the difference is. I always thought a baronet was just like a small baron, you know, like a cigarette, Um, (laughs) but apparently they're different in some way. His brother got knighted. His wife wife's father was a knight. His son became named the Viscount Chandos. I don't know where that came from, but I just think of Chandos as being like a, a, a contraction of Cheeky Nandos. <laughs> I was the Viscount of Chandos. <laughs> Come on, lads, I'm the Viscount of Chandos. And they all go down for some spicy wings. But look, nonetheless, um, Alfred Littleton was a wicketkeeper played in a test match at the Oval in 1884. England were leading 1-0. It's a third test. They just want to draw the game. This is the match where Billy Murdoch makes the first double hundred in test cricket, which we've talked about on the show quite a bit before, makes 211. 
And when he's out, Australia are 532 for six. They've been batting for freaking ages. It's one of the few innings to this day where all 11 players bolt at some point when England were trying to get Australia out because it was before you were allowed to declare. So sides had to get all out. They couldn't just decide to, to give the innings away. So Alfred Littleton had already been tried to bowl a few overs. I think they were bowling four ball overs in that day. And he tried to bowl a few overs of seam up and it had been mostly down the leg side and they'd taken 11 runs off him and it hadn't been very good. Later in the day when they're six down, everyone's knackered and he comes back into the attack and this time he doesn't bother taking the pads off and just bowls underarm lobs because you could do that at the time. And Australia didn't really mind getting out so they were trying to smash it. And he ends up taking the last four wickets to fall, a spell of four for eight. So he ends up with innings figures of four for 19, which would be the number from Dan Walsh. Filthy lobs as well. Apparently the first wicket was an accident because our mate Billy Midwinter, who we talked about last week, just tried to play a big slog that accidentally got caught by WG Grace, who was the fill-in wicketkeeper. And also Billy didn't hit it. And Grace was later, he was like, well, uh, the umpire had already given it out, so I couldn't withdraw the appeal. Um, (laughs) And it was like, yeah, you can, you're the captain. And he's like, no, 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 it was impossible. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, despite how filthy and shithouse the actual bowling was he gets an lbw he gets one that hits the stumps he gets one hit uh, to mid off and he walks off with four for 19 and in a career spanning 101 first class matches he never took another wicket he took four wickets in a test match the best analysis by a wicketkeeper ever to this day and four for 19 was what he got yeah, I remember writing about this, uh, albeit briefly, in a piece I wrote many years ago, and also the fact that it was his last test match, and apparently the crowd went wild when he came on to bowl as well, uh, bowling these lobs. It was to mm. great amusement when he when he decided doing it, and, and and that was that. So I'm glad we got a chance to tell the story of Alf Littleton and his lobs, four for 19. Great work, Dan. Uh, next up, Alistair Wilson. Now, I did what... You do occasionally, Jeff, and had a look at batting averages. So mm-hmm. I felt as though I was stealing your thunder a bit here because I very rarely go near batting averages, mm-hmm. but I worked out last night that only it's one a good, player... It's a good sort of average, though. It's a good number, you know, 41.9. Yeah, but surprisingly, the only batsman in the history of Test cricket, men's Test mm. cricket, to have a batting average of 41.9. No one else has got an average. There's, there's a number of people with 41.8, quite mm-hmm. a few with 42, but right on 41.9, I think it was 41.93 to be precise, but I rounded down... Mm-hmm. Gundapa Vishwanath, or Vishi as he was known to all and sundry, mm-hmm. uh, in his long career for India between 1969 and 1983. 91 test matches, which was a record at the time. 14 centuries, uh, 6,080 runs. A true artist uh, are the first words on his Crick Info profile, which I think is quite nice to be called a true artist to start mm-hmm. that analysis of his career. He was known for having these like really thick, strong arms, but he played like delicate late cuts, so it was a nice contrast, mm-hmm. nice combination. He was hugely influential alongside Sunil Gavaskar in that 1970s Indian team, Jeff, that you were talking about with respect to their, to their spin bowlers uh, in recent weeks. He was known for a couple of really influential innings against the West Indies as well, who were, you know, to an extent, the standard bearer through the mid to late 70s, a 97 at Madras in 74-75. And then at the same ground, three years later, he made 124 against that fierce some attack and he was leading the Indian team uh, through mm. much of this period as well. All 14 of his test entries, I like this, all 14 came in winning matches for India. So you can interpret wow. that two ways. Yeah, I think, I think I'm right in saying Mark Waugh had a similar kind of stat. I mean, it may okay. have been that 
you know, that he they seldom lost when he scored runs yeah. or when he went big. So you can kind uh-huh. of interpret it that as like, you know, that he didn't make runs when they were up against it. But on the other hand, if, if not for him, then maybe they wouldn't have been uh, yeah. winning those test matches. It's, it's, inter- it's interesting how you can always find a negative way to interpret those things because people used mm. to get into mm. Tendulkar all the time for scoring tons when they lost, you know. <laughs> so, oh, only scores hundreds when we lose when it doesn't matter. The, the <laughs> Ian Bell thing, only scores hundreds when someone else scores a hundred. Well, you know what's really fucking handy? when one of your players scores 100 is for someone else to score one as well. You know, that's when you <laughs> really tend to win games. If one person scores 100, you maybe don't. And if two of them do, you probably do. Yeah, that's right. That's right. There's another bit of trivia here which relates to what we were saying earlier about Conway. So Vichy was the only player in first-class history to score a double century on first-class debut and a century on test debut. So there've been hmm. different combinations, but a double in first class cricket mm-hmm. and a single solitary hundred uh, mm-hmm. on, in test in test cricket. So one of the one hundred and nine men to do that at test level. That was against Australia at Campur in nineteen sixty nine. Bill mm-hmm. Laurie's team that that series that really took it out of the Australians and. That was alongside the, the tour of South Africa. He made a duck in the second innings, though, which really kind of brought him back to earth. So a century in the first yep. innings and a duck in the second. So one of four players to make 100 on debut and then back it up with a duck the second time around, which I quite mm-hmm. liked. He went on to continue uh, in his involvement in the game, a distinguished career as a match referee between 1999 and 2004. And he was chairman of Selectors for India after that. Also, the team manager still going strong uh, now at 72 years of age and I'm sure enjoying the success of the Indian team under Virat Kohli, uh, the man who averaged 41.9 in Test cricket, the only man to do so, Gundapa Vishwanath. Very nice. So we haven't talked about Vishy a whole lot on this show. He sort of comes up peripherally in a, a number of stories, um, but haven't looked directly at him, haven't looked him in the eye and, uh, and said what we think. So it's, uh, it's nice <laughs> to, to have him come around. So that is the doublehead of the 419, Dan Walsh, Alistair Wilson. Thank you both. The next nerd pleasure we have up today, Jeff, uh, is a man by the name of Brian Stratford. Now, he comes with a clue Mm -hmm. in 273. Mm -hmm. My initial clue, he says, would be that this is a number I saw published recently in an article about this player, and the clue came through on the 13th of March, Jeff. Mm, Okay, okay. So I don't necessarily think that my answer is going to be Brian's answer, but I wanted to give this answer anyway uh, for my own reasons. But it also could be because this would have come through during the recent India-England test series. Virat Kohli would have been being discussed at the time, maybe in relation to him not having made 100 for a fair while. Uh, And they might have harked back to a, a time when he wasn't scoring hundreds, but it didn't matter because he was scoring crazy runs. The T20 World Cup campaign of 2016 in India, where he played five matches and he made 273 runs in those five games. Brian's number is 273. He was only out twice in the tournament, so he averaged 136.5 in a T20 tournament. (laughs) Handy. But it was headlined by two back-to-back innings. Uh, There was 82 not out in a run chase against Australia in what was effectively a quarterfinal. And then 88 not out, or 89 not out, was it, in um, against the West Indies when they were batting first in what was formerly the semi-final. So I want to ask people to consider these numbers for a minute because the way these innings were played was extraordinary to me. 82 off 51 balls, right? So it's a fast rate that's going at about eight and over. And then 89 off 47 balls, which is going at about 
nine and a half and over. So two very fast innings. 82 off 51 balls contains nine fours and two sixes. So only 48 runs out of the 82. That's less than 60% of the innings in boundaries. Mm -hmm. 89 off 47 balls with 11 fours and one six. That means 50 runs out of 89. So that's even lower as a percentage, 56% of the innings in boundaries. When you see fast T20 innings, they're almost exclusively built on big boundary hitting. This was the opposite. Mm. It was mm. like, I'll get half the runs in boundaries and I'll get the rest of them by running like an absolute freaking maniac. And I, yeah, I mean, you, right. I know you were watching these games as well, doing white line wireless. I, I suppose you'd remember them too. Well, I remember the Australia game especially. I mean, it was the, at one stage I needed, I think I'm already saying four, 14 and a half and over through the last six overs. Mm. And you, you're dead right. I mean, your, your your recollection there, it was the twos that he was running. He was just running Australia ragged, placing the ball where the sweepers weren't and making sure he could do it in a risk-free enough way to stay out there. Because, of course, if he falls at that point, it's probably game over. Mm. But he just... He just timed it to perfection, doing it via scoring lots of twos rather than trying to clear the ropes time and time again. So, yeah, that always stands out to me, that innings he played in what, as you say, it was kind of a quasi-quarterfinal mm. as the most supreme innings I've seen in T20 cricket in many respects because it didn't rely on brawn. It was all about his brain, his cricket yeah. brain and the calculations he was making. I, I went back and had another look at it um, to see how much my memory uh, matched up to, to how it went. And so... There's a point where, you know, they lose their fourth wicket with about six overs to go. From the last five overs, they need 59 from 30 balls and they've just had a new player come in. MS Dhoni's just come in. So they need 11 and a half and over. And basically what they figured was Dhoni doesn't need to get his eye in to hit the ball if he just runs because they were the, between them, they were the best running pair that India had. So Hazelwood bowls an over in which four different times Coley picks out a spot in the deep where he can get one and come back for the second as the throw, throw arrives in the keeper's gloves. Every single one of them was just, just, just back. But his placement was so perfect. He hits a boundary as well, and so he gets 12 from the over when they needed 11.5. It was just the precision of it. You're like, yep, up with the run rate, no worries at all. And then he hit a few more boundaries in, in a, a James Faulkner over and then a Nathan coulton over to break the back of the chase and then finish it off. But within those last five overs... He faces 19 balls and hits five twos, which is an extraordinary rate. Like players don't hit a lot of twos in T20 cricket. You know, the mm. most innings mm. might have might have two or three if you bat for a long time. And in the West Indies game, it's almost identical in that he's batting with Dhoni at the end. They've got less than five overs together. In that space of time, Coley faces 18 balls, hits five twos, and all of them are at a flat sprint. Like they're dipping in and out of the crease at the other end and turning back in sort of Olympic swimming style. It's incredibly precise <laughs> to the point where on the last ball of the match, they take one run and Dhoni's like, what about two? And Coley's just dead. He's like bent over hands on his knees, just sucking air. It was so hot. This was in – the first one was in Mahali and the second one was in Mumbai, I think, and it was so sticky and humid out there and they were just dripping, dripping, dripping sweat and gasping for air and managing to to, to pull this running together. It was one of the more extraordinary things I've seen in the game. Uh, the West Indies hit a bunch of sixes and got there with two balls to spare, but it was still a, an absolutely supreme innings.
I like the comparison to an Olympic swimmer there, Jeff, in terms of the svelte uh, turning mm. between the wickets. So I suppose it's all a legacy of the Dean Jones stories that we were telling last September. So well played there, Brian Stafford at 273. I hope that's correct. It probably won't be. We'll, <laughs> we'll revisit it next week. But if it is right, uh, you've done nicely. Uh, next up is Dane Hanstead. Now, the clue was that it isn't the obvious answer. So I think by that he meant, well, it's not Dean Jones 324. That's his cap number. It's also his highest score in first-class cricket against okay, South Australia at the G uh, in 94, 95. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of other um, three, two, fours in first-class cricket, so I had a look at those. Um, J.B. Strollmeyer for Trinidad against Guyana in 1946. Mm-hmm. And Wahid Mirza for Karachi Whites versus Quetta, David Quetta, uh, in 1976. <laughs> when Love Takes Over featuring Kelly Rowland. <laughs> uh, it's also a score that Australia made, which I just thought was interesting for me, uh, in consecutive one-day internationals against mm. the West Indies at Brisbane and Melbourne in 2010, stuff I like, but none of that really rung true. So I I wrote to Dane just to narrow it down a little bit, and he said that it related to one of his earlier pledges and before his Victorian theme became a thing because, of course, Dane has made a number of pledges that relate to regional Victoria. So, Mm -hmm. Jeff, you took it from there. Big fan of regional Vic, uh, but before he got to regional Vic, uh, on my massive spreadsheet, I was able to find out (laughs) that Dane's previous pledges involved uh, James Faulkner's bowling return during the 2015 World Cup final in which he was player of the match and also Shane Watson's combined tally of international wickets across all formats which is a tricky number but if I was looking at one day international bowling figures and it was related to Victoria because I, I took from his hint that this was related to Victoria but using a metric pre the Victoria obsession it could be a not so celebrated Victorian cricketer by the name of Ian Kellen, who some mm. may remember from the 1970s, a.k.a. Mad Dog Kellen, right arm quick, who takes us on another road back to the 1977-78 test series between Australia and India. We've talked about this quite a bit in the last few weeks without really getting into the fact that it is one of the absolute classic test series. So this is Sunil Gavaskar in his prime, and it links back to what Adam was researching with Gundapa Vishwanath. They were playing together and doing all of the the work, carrying most of the load with the batting, and the spin quartet were all there as well. Bishan Beatty, Prasanna, Chandrasekhar, and Venkataragavan were all involved in that series. They weren't all playing in the same 11, but they all did play at some stage. So it's two all leading into the fifth test, after Australia won the first two test matches, one by 16 runs and one by two wickets, two absolute nail-biters. Then India wiped them out in Melbourne and Sydney by 222 runs and then by an innings. Chandrasekhar's taking bags of wickets. They go into a fifth test decider at a batting paradise at Adelaide, which should all be done when Australia make 505. Uh, Peter Tui was amongst the runs, who we spoke about <laughs> recently. And yes, last week. Yeah, was it only last week? They bowl out India for 269. Vishwanath nearly makes a ton, but doesn't, thus keeping his record intact because he gets out for 89. So his record of never making a ton in a loss stands <laughs> because he didn't get one. Australia piled up third innings runs. They set India 493 to win. But Jeff Thompson had been injured bowling in the first innings, only bowled three and a half overs. And so India go and nearly bloody chase down 493. They get to 445 in the fourth innings. They're only 48 runs short of the target when they're bowled out. And they also did it without much of a contribution from Sunil Gavaskar, who'd 
made three tons in the previous four tests and 450 runs in the, the series, but he only made seven and 29 in that fifth test match. But the guy who got him out in the second innings was Ian Kellen. And the guy who was there at the end, who was picking off some of the stubborn tail enders who were nudging the score up, was Ian Kellen. Took six wickets for the match, but he also basically broke his back. He, he fractured a vertebrae, didn't know that he'd done it, got sent to the West Indies for the next tour, was trying to bowl in the tour games, was in pain, couldn't bowl properly, couldn't get picked for a test, never played another test match. But he did play a couple of one-day internationals in the West Indies, and he played three more in Pakistan a few years later. And in the Windies, he took his best ever one-day international figures, and they were three for 24, the very number, 324 that Dane Hanstead popped through. And not everybody gets a big-name West Indies hall like Irvin Schillingford, Norbert Phillip and Derek Parry. How about that for a threefer? <laughs> Pop that on your wall. I think Irvin Schillingford, if I recall correctly, is the first test cricketer from Dominica because his mm-hmm. son, of course, went on to bowl off spin for the West Indies about 10 years ago or so. But oh, yes, Shane that, Schillingford, I mean, yeah. Yes, yes, the, the son of Irvin, hmm. uh, who's a real hero in, in that part of the world. I remember um, taking note of that when visiting uh, Dominica in 2015, my first overseas tour. Hmm. Well, so this is where I'm going with Dane's number. So if it related to one-day bowling figures as per James Faulkner, then it would indeed be uh, 3 for 24 uh, that was taken there. But the other little interesting part is that Dane's other number, the total number of international wickets, taken by Shane Robert Watson, was 291. Guess what Ian Kellen's test cap number was? Ah, very nice. Very, very nice. (laughs) And I'm assuming there's some sort of rural Victorian connection as well? Well, maybe. The only thing that I could find was that um, it's not not Wangaratta sort of vibes, but Ian Kellen did become a bat maker and he planted plantations of willow trees in Sale, which is out in Gippsland and up near Healesville, sort of northeast of Melbourne. And so that is regional Victoria, which might be enough for Dane to have felt an affinity with Ian Callan, uh, the mad dog who helped bowl Australia to a classic victory and buggered his back in the process. Yeah, that's right. And those Callum bats have um, his test number 291 on the front of them as well. I've seen those mm. in the past. So he must be into the numbers as well. Oh, fantastic. Uh, good job, Jeff. Uh, thank you, Dane Hanstead, for being one of our most dependable uh, nerd pledges. Whenever he gets his number solved, he puts another number in there. And that's how you, we keep story time going. That's how we're into episode number 50 from Behaviour, just like that from Dane. Our next new number, Jeff, is uh, from Sam Littlejohn. Now, this is one that I took on, 369. There's no clue, but as it turned out, this was quite an enjoyable number to research, Mm -hmm. for it is one of Don Bradman's triple centuries. Bradman made 369 for South Australia after he made the move against Tasmania at Adelaide Oval in 1936. So it's not a Shield game, and I suppose it continues the pattern from that era when they'd play when Shield teams would play Tasmania and they would kind of beat up on them. We, we, we mm. referred to Bill Ponsford doing just that a couple of episodes ago on Storytime. So the first innings, Tassie are out for 158. And then SA are in a bit of strife. Uh, they're 31 for two in reply. Bradman's there, though, and he rattles off 369 in just 253 minutes. 46 fours and four sixes. He brought up his triple century in 213 minutes. And when he reached 336, it was his 15,000th run in first-class cricket. I was 
kind of curious where that fitted in in terms of fastest triples and i found that the fastest on record that we have as far as ball faced are concerned uh, is from a chap by the name of marco moraes who made the fastest triple of all time in 191 deliveries for border against east province in in south african provincial cricket the quickest before that was charlie mccartney who brought up his triple century against knots at trent bridge in 1921 an innings we've discussed before on story time he's three four five he got to 300 in 221 balls so i went and had a look at the scorecard he got to the triple in 205 minutes so that's eight minutes quicker than bradman did it wow. in 1936 so pretty close in terms of that metric it was also the 50th triple tum in first class cricket for bradman when he made mm-hmm. his 369 there have now been over 200 now i'm relying on on the work of the cricket country website for some of this data here but the first was wg grace for the mcc against kent in 1876 something we've discussed in the past uh, the 10th was bobby abel's 357 not out for surrey against somerset in 1899 another innings that we've talked about on story time mm-hmm. over the last 12 months in more later times Chris Gale was responsible for the 150th. That was at the rec, the beautiful mm-hmm. recreation ground in Antigua. His test 317 against South Africa in 2004. So returning to the game in question, South Australia made 688 and they bowled out Tassie for 181 the second time around. So a comfortable win for the Sackers. It was Bradman's second highest score in first class cricket behind the 452 not out that he made in 1929-30. But just a month earlier, against Mm. Victoria, he made 357. So he made two triple centuries in two months, in January and February, respectively. Both of them over the 350 mark. The the story 350 mark. You've got to raise your bat for the 350, (laughs) don't you? Oh, the big 350. (laughs) Everybody have a round of applause for the 350. Go and get 400. Come back and tell me when you got 400. Only made one of them, (laughs) didn't he? Ponsford got two. Go and make 400, Don. (laughs) His other triples were an unbeaten 340 against Victoria in 1928-29. So just uh, 10 short of the 350, that would have that would have burned. Made his 400. He made, of course, the 334 at Leeds in 1930, his Mm -hmm. most famous innings, and the 304 at Leeds, which was four years later in the Test match in 1934. Mm -hmm. So all up, six triple tons for the Don, which is the most ever, Uh uh, ahead of Ponsford and Hammond, who made four apiece. And of course, he came within one run of going to seven after. Finishing yeah. on 299 not out against South Africa in 1931-32, which again is another innings that we've talked about in the past on Storytime. Mm. So the 369 from Sam Littlejohn in some respects completes the set because that's never come up before. And I thought, what better time than our 50th show uh, than to talk about the 50th triple ton in first-class cricket? Don Bradman. He probably came within about two yards of another 300 given that they got run out trying to come back for the the 300th run but yeah it's interesting that the 299 should come up today because um on on my half of the preparation i have a feeling young martin crow might be popping up later in the show as well Uh, (laughs) another 299 merchant let's get on to the last new number this comes in from harrison payne and the number the number is Two, one, three, two, thirteen! Yay! Party! This is the final words magic number, 213. Uh, we did a whole show about it. It's called Chasing the Golden Number, I think, if you scroll back in the feed by at least a year by this point, year and a half. I don't know, it's been a while. Where we looked at every single possible permutation that I could find of 213 in Test Cricket. 
But that's never the end of it. There are always other 213s to find. There are new 213s being created as we speak. And so I've gone back to first-class cricket for this one, Adam, as you like to do, mm-hmm. uh, to, to see what I could find for a 213 there. So if we're looking at players who've made 213 in first-class cricket, why not talk about the man who thought 213 was so nice, he made it twice uh, in the same season. (laughs) You've been to the SCG a lot. Anytime you go there, you hear them talk about the MA Noble stand. And and maybe you don't... Maybe a lot of people just go there and look at the MA Noble stand and they don't think much about MA Noble, you know? They don't know that his name was Montague. They don't know that he was born in Sydney, played for... Paddington got in the New South Wales team by the mid-1890s, playing test cricket by 1897. He was considered to be the best all-rounder in the game at the time. He ended up three runs short of 2,000 test runs when they didn't play a lot of test matches. That was a lot. And he also took over 100 wickets. As a captain, he's credited with being one of the first to use tailored fields for different players to block a player's favourite shot huh. rather than... Because I think it used to just be relatively standard. You know, well, you have this, you have two slips and you have a cover and whatnot, and then it's up to the player to beat the field. But he was like, no, no, where do they like to play? Let's stop them scoring. Sounds obvious, but apparently it wasn't. Well, you think about the, the comparison to baseball, where the field... I mean, I know mm. that players do alter a little bit as to where they set up, but fundamentally, the, the fielding positions mm. are the fielding positions, right? Whereas cricket yeah. went, well, let's get a bit more Let's get a bit more resourceful. I, I like that. I, I did not know that. I did not know there was a set field. I mean, we talk about the conventional 6-3 field when on commentary mm. or something like that, but I didn't know there actually was a field that was set until Noble came along. That's good stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how um, entrenched it was. You know, I haven't done the research on that or, or whether, you know, whether there was flexibility or not. But I think there was a, a general sort of convention, roughly, that you set up a field in pretty much the same way um, right. rather than targeting particular players. So he had a, a pretty full career, played four Ashes series at home, four in England, also two at South Africa captained in three series and won the Ashes in 1909. And that was in fairly significant part thanks to a player we talked about a lot just last week or the week before, who was Warren Bardsley, who was a young left-handed opener who had a massive shield season in 1908-09 and then went to England in 1909 uh, and made twin tons, the first test player to make twin tons during the fifth match of that series to get Australia the draw that won them the series. So during that big season for New South Wales, uh, he had Noble at first drop. Bardsley was opening and so that must have been rather reassuring because uh, when they played South Australia, Bardsley made 56 and then Noble came in after him to make 213. Everyone just liked to beat the shit out of South Australia in those days. Um, So New South Wales ran up 700 plus and then bowled out South Australia twice for under 100 just before Christmas. And then at the end of January, playing Victoria, young Albert Hopkins gets out early, meaning that Bardsley makes 192, batting with Noble, who makes another 213. And this time, New South Wales made over 800. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I will follow up to let you know that Victoria were not as easily beaten, though. Uh, They also had to follow on, but they followed on after making 468. Wow, how do you how do you like that as a bowler? You've just a team's just made four hundred and sixty eight against you, and the captain's like, "Yeah, we'll go go. again." 
Um, so the second time around, Victoria made 487. Uh, it was a timeless match, so they could just keep going. So I think Ransford made a couple of tons, Vernon Ransford. Uh, Warwick Armstrong made one. Peter McAllister, who would later be a selector who Clem Hill tried to throw out a window, made 100. <laughs> Tom Horan made some runs, the Irishman, and they just kept batting. And so in the end, New South Wales actually had to chase 141 in the fourth innings, despite having made over 800 themselves. And they managed it in 50 overs with Noble, not out, 69. Nice. Nice. I, I would have loved nothing more than the twist at the end to be that they didn't chase 1-4-1 one, one and they were all out and lost the game after making 800 the first time around. I think we would have heard of that game yes, more yes. so if that had happened. That, that's true. Uh, that's the end of our new numbers. Thank you for giving Jeff uh, the chance to have another look at 2.13. Harrison Payne, uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to talk about uh, fundraising for good causes. Then we'll be back with some revisits, some confirmations and some correspondence. And Julio Pledge. Julio Pledge. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. The world may have its share of very ordinary people doing very ordinary things, uh, but it also has some good people doing good things or trying to. Uh, the Lord's Taverners are run by some of those good people. They try to raise money to help kids and young people, particularly who are living with disabilities or living in disadvantaged situations. And uh, they do that by raising money. And a very nice thing that has started to happen in the last few weeks is that some of our listeners have just taken it upon themselves to try to raise money for the Lord's Taverners after hearing about it on the show. Yeah, I'd say extraordinary people doing extraordinary things take it up a notch because the work the Lord's Tavs do, as we've discussed proudly over the last year or so, uh, is absolutely vital for members of our community and members of the cricketing community as well who really need it most. And what's been really gratifying in recent times, we've discussed the Declan Lawler run that he's about to undertake, which is just extraordinary. And that's been, I say extraordinary again, because it is 180 miles across four days, which was inspired by our conversations here on The Final Word. And it's pretty cool to get a note this week from Nicholas Tewson, who wanted to pass on that he's doing the coast to coast cycle, which is across the north of England, across three days later in the year, three days Mm. of cycling which includes going across the Pennines, so between Manchester Mm. and Leeds, uh, with a couple of mates. So he's doing that next month, I should say. And they didn't know which charity to raise money for, but having listened to the final word, they've made a decision to go with the Lord's Taverners, and I think that's just fantastic. So he wanted us to mention it on the pod. We'll pop it in the show notes, as we have for Declan. But, Jeff, it's emblematic of the fact that, as we've been sort of saying of late, there are a number of ways you can also align your fundraising objective Mm with the Lord's tabs they help you with <laughs> they help you with uh, you know the architecture around it it can be kind of a bit daunting if you want to do a big task you yeah. don't really know how to you've never done it before or you want to do it on your own you want to make sure it's legit you know you you don't want to just be saying hey everybody give me a bunch of money which I promise I'll give to some <laughs> good cause you know you, yeah you want to have a degree of formality around it so that uh, people can be confident in what you're doing uh, even if they don't necessarily know you well uh, and and that's what the Lord's Tavs can do. They can give you information about different sort of activities that you can do and also the the infrastructure about how to actually fundraise, how to promote it online, how to list it and set it up and get people you know and people you don't know helping to get those donations coming in. 
Yeah, and, and we've talked about the idea of it being sort of a more individualistic exercise for the Lord's Tabs in a year when there'll be no major fundraising activities possible. By that, mm. I mean major lunches where we're all indoors and, and so on. So their team is doing a lot of work. The Lord's Tavern is 11, playing loads of games to raise money. But also it's about individuals taking on this task. And, and I think, it, it, yeah, it can be a bit daunting if you're just one person. But if you know that you're going to be part of something like the, the Ben Nevis Challenge and you've got sort of 25 other people doing it as well, there's that kind mm. of Humanality and, and team environment that you'll be part of. So check out the show notes for information on that. Check out the show notes for what Nicholas Tewson is up to. We'll get an update from Declan Lawler in a couple of weeks as well. We love working with Lord's Taverners as we have done pretty much throughout the 50 weeks of story time. Lordstaverners.org, uh, great people in our cricketing community doing extraordinary things. Hi, I'm Brian Ruddle. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. It's story time. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. We've done the Nerd Pledge, or at least we've done the mm-hmm. new numbers on Nerd Pledge. What we haven't done for a while is, well, Jeff, a different kind of game. What's it called? Julio Pledge. Does it work if I do <laughs> no. it for that one? I don't well, know. We, it was worth a try, but I think we know for future reference that doesn't yeah. work. But you better explain what it means because nerds and Julios, mm. uh, if you're familiar with the Australian cricket team of the 90s, you would know exactly mm. what we're talking about. But if you're not, it could require mm. some explanation. Yeah, maybe the voicing should be more like Julio Pledge, you know, sort of late night radio style. Yeah, there, there was a division between nerds and Julios. Uh, Julios were apparently, you know, suave and, and like out at the, I suppose, 80s discotheques um, with their shoulder pads in their jackets and whatever and, you know, being being cool guys and nerds were nerds. And so, you know, not everybody, not everyone wants to do a nerd pledge and hear about us talk about 1880s cricketers. Some people just say, look, I like the show. I'm going to give you two bucks. Whatever, like that's fine, and that we're we're entirely happy with that. Um, but in order to give them a little bit of love on the show, basically this segment has turned into me reading people's names and trying to infer something about them if I don't know anything about them, which usually I don't. Um, so here we go, here we go. Let's let's warm up for this. Our first um, our first name on the list. Well, this person struck fear into the hearts of chefs worldwide as a, a master. Risotto thief Just to break into places and steal the risottos Do you know how I know that? How Jeff? Because his name is Nick Rice (laughs) (laughs) It's like that uh, Nominative determinism Segment of the pop pitch uh, uh, Newsletter that goes out each week I'm I'm sure that yes Nick Rice would get a run If he were doing that for a living Very good Uh, Thank you, Nick Rice. Um, We have Anand Vishwanathan, who is very nearly a Vishwanath, but just had to add an A-N on on the end. So we almost had another Vishy reference. But it did occur to me that maybe as a Vishwanathan, he could become a Vishwanathan and get in with the other Nathans because I know that, you know, we often give stick to Australian or British commentators who can't get things right when it comes to Asian names. Uh, But I did also have the amusing experience in Sri Lanka of hanging... There there were a bunch of kind of elderly gents who who hung around the Sri Lankan Broadcasting Corporation radio stuff. And and a couple of them asked me very earnestly at one point whether Nathan Lyon and Nathan Coulter Nile were brothers, the Nathan brothers, which makes sense in a sort of culture where, where you know, sure. last names yeah, go yeah, first. Yeah. But it's always tickled me since because when you look at the two of them, I mean, Nathan Coulter Nile is sort of offensively handsome and Nathan Lyon is 
you know, looks like a bag of coat hangers. <laughs> um, and, and the idea that they would be brothers is is particularly amusing. But maybe Anand Vishwert Nathan can get in with the nation bro- Nathan brothers. You know, that's my thought. Paul Dennett is on the list, uh, which is nice. I just liked Paul Dennett because I thought Paul Dennett sounds like uh, a detective inspector from Line of Duty, which I know you've been watching a lot of recently. DI Paul Dennett. <laughs> All right, you know. I can just feel it. I just feel that vibe. Yeah, put Paul Dennett at one end and Darren Bennett at the other. That's how I see it. <laughs> Bennett and Dennett. Uh, Jagannath and Tiruvallur Ichambadi, a beautiful name there, which just has an Icelandic sound to me. Tiruvallur with the double L, very nice in the middle. And I recently watched um, Will Ferrell's Eurovision movie, The Story of Fire Saga, which, you know, shush. talk about an emotional ending. Oof, tears, tears in the eyes. But but the title the title doesn't work. You can't say the story of because the name of the band is Fire Saga. So they're saying the story of Fire Saga. But it sounds like the story of Fire Saga. You've already <laughs> said story. It can't be a saga. Nobody. They needed a proofreader on the title. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and some of the more indulgent moments of this year's Eurovision when I didn't watch the Eurovision film. I got through about ten minutes mm. of it when they went to Iceland and the. I, I, I can only assume the person reading out the 12 points uh, for Iceland was the member of the band or the actor from the band and he mm-hmm. wouldn't and he wouldn't sort of move off camera until they played the song or some shit. In the end, they didn't mm. relent. But yes, it was 60 seconds of my life. I'm not getting back. Much as the last 60 <laughs> seconds of your life, you're not getting back either after I did a bad job of explaining it. Please continue. Your Eurovision interest is one of the very interesting things about you, Adam Collins. <laughs> it, it never ceases to surprise. <laughs> I'm more surprised you didn't watch the movie. I just would have thought it would have been right up your alley. So A lot of um, people did. A lot of people did. But mm. we sat down to watch it one night and it just didn't, it, it, it just didn't ping the bits that were meant mm-hmm. to ping didn't. So, you know, mm-hmm. we moved on. I get it. Uh, Ross Davey is in there. Thank you, Ross. I just like to think that Ross, if, if he has a football card, it's Ross, open inverted commas, river fever, close inverted commas, <laughs> Davey. That would be a quality nickname to, to be walking around the place with. Alex has come in. Now, Alex, you've not given me much that's to work the, with, that's to the, be honest. That's the genesis of my... Um, my problem with needles is having – they thought I had Ross River fever when I was about six uh-huh. and they had to yeah. give me a number of blood tests, one of which didn't go particularly well. By that I mean they had to have a, a number of goes at finding a vein. And to this day, 30 years later, I'm still kind of fucked up about needles, which meant the um, inoculation for COVID mm. wasn't the most enjoyable morning, although we got through it pretty easily. But, yes, it's funny how those – Things that happen when you're a kid influence your adulthood and that's all due to a misdiagnosis in, in my case of mm. Ross River Fever. That's all down to Ross Davey. So, you know, <laughs> that's your cross to bear, Ross Davey. Thank you for supporting the show to assuage your guilt. Alex just came through with Alex and no last name. So there's not a lot I can do with that, Alex. The only thing that uh, I've just got to assume that you're sort of the opposite to Alexander the Great. You're Alexander the Modest. And you're like, oh, no, don't worry about me. Don't put my last name in. No, it's fine. It's fine. Pranav Lalan has come in. Now, Pranav, don't try to hide your true identity. We know that you're really Pranav Danavadi, the guy who made a thousand runs in a schoolboy match. <laughs> we know. We know you were playing against 10 year olds when you were 15. We know that none of them knew how to catch or bowl. I think they dropped you 27 times. I mean, you know, you can, you can dine out on the thousand runs, but we know it. We know it was played on a football field, you know. Yeah, why, why, why haven't why haven't we seen this bloke ever again? I mean, he, I mean, obviously yeah. this was constructed to get a headline, but if he was any good, 
if you make a thousand or three hundred odd balls, well, I think from memory that was the <laughs> equation. Surely he'd yeah. be kicking on by now. But no, it was dodgy. We all know it was dodgy. Uh, I th- I think the boundaries were literally like fifteen meters or something, yeah. and he got dropped over twenty times. So <laughs> you know, I mean, potentially. <laughs> I'm not going to say I could make a thousand runs in those circumstances, but maybe it'd be a better chance than others. <laughs> um, but Pranav, thank you for, for coming on to the show as well. Uh, Sushil R. Ramasahayam, which is a beautiful name to say, particularly because I just watched uh, the Mitchells versus the Machines, and they they make a big point in that film of bringing the song Numa Numa through at, at a few different moments. You may rem- you'll remember this song, I'm sure, Adam. And it just seems to fit, you know, with this name, you know, Rama Saha, Rama Saho, Rama Saha, Rama Saha Yam. Uh, that's Sushil. He's, he's our Numa Numa man. Uh, Brian Withington has jumped in. Oh, we know Brian. Brian from the OBO. What a great man. One of the most diligent OBO correspondents of all has jumped in on the patron page. Can I tell you a story about Brian mm. Withington very quickly? Uh, during sure. the 2019 World Cup, Bangladesh were playing Pakistan in the final group game at Lord's. Well, the mm-hmm. final group game that they were playing for the tournament. And I was in raptures about what a beautiful kit the Bangladesh away kit was. It was red with mm-hmm. green rather than green with red. And I just loved it. And Brian, because he's a wonderful human being, immediately went and bought it for me. Bless him. But unfortunately, <laughs> he sent it to the Guardian offices and in turn, I never saw it because, you know, it must have ended up in a mail room or something and it never actually ended up in, in my hands. So a couple of years on, perhaps or not even a couple of years, 18 months on, he decided to buy it for me again and buy Winnie one as well. So we now have two Bangladesh tops in the house at the moment. One, <laughs> the, the Winnie one is, is um, she'll grow into when she's like five or six years old or whatever. And mine, I put on properly for the first time the other day. I mean, I've worn it. I, I, I need to uh, perhaps, uh, I'm not quite at my playing weight at the moment. Uh, Post COVID, I'll be able to fit into it uh, in a more um, comprehensive way, but I wore it to the nets the other day. So <laughs> I, I have now um, had that on. But that's all thanks to Brian Withington. So one of the real good guys in cricket. Very nice. Thank you, Brian. Rob Kingston actually signed up under a pseudonym initially, but then came on the show and gave an interview as Rob <laughs> Kingston. Your cover's blown, Rob. We know who you are. We know who you are. Eleanor Higgs is in there. Um, I like oh. Eleanor because every time her name pops up, I just think Eleanor Higsby <laughs> picks up the rice in the church with <laughs> El Higgs um, is, Ellie Higgs is one of the one of the uh, one of my favourite people on Twitter actually. So she is part of the um, part of the Denley meme team, and she's mm-hmm. been my conduit, one of my conduits to to Denley meme team fandom. As I'm writing a piece about that for the Night Watchman in the next edition of the Quarterly. So hi Ellie, uh, and she also has become uh, via Tailenders. She's become a club scorer. So she learnt how to score during lockdown last year when Tailenders were doing score alongs. And this year, she's been working with a club site, which I think is just fantastic. And again, it says a lot about how you can involve yourself at club level in all sorts of different ways. You don't need to play to still be part of a club. So thank you, Ellie Higgs, for being amongst it. Richard Oakley, who I can only assume was the sunglasses supplier to Shane Warne. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would like to think that the people who put out you know, Speed Dealer sunglasses would also have a good gear guide, uh, a little <laughs> bit like the Cricketer magazine, <laughs> just just to help out, just to help make good decisions. Sometimes it's dark at the back of the dance floor and you don't know what's happening. Mohit 
has joined in with Euros as well. Very classy Mohit. Mm. I like to think that Mohit is is the ultimate rejoinder for... You know how there's a section of Indian fans who like to call Rohit Sharma uh, no-hit Sharma? Yes. <laughs> Look at this guy. He sucks. He only makes hundreds and hundreds of runs all the time. He's no-hit Sharma. I like to think that Rohit could go, well, I'm going to change my name the other way and call myself Mohit Sharma. That's right. I hit Mo. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the opposite way that this can go. Yeah, my Money, my problems. I, I like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that works for me. Mark Peckham, who I can only assume trains chickens in how to be the boss of the coop. That's where I was having my net last week that I mentioned yeah? before. Peckham. In Peckham. Yes, they've, um, they've, ah. they've, there were new nets that went up there uh, last year. I think Ollie Pope opened them, actually, with, um, uh, okay. with Surrey. John Surtees, uh, our power from the comms team over there. I think he takes credit for them having nets at Peckham or something like that. But they're very mm-hmm. nice. They, they've done a good job there. Okay, that's nice. I have a power board named after me at the Oval, um, thanks to John Surtees, because um, <laughs> because I had an adapter that wouldn't fit into the outside things, and every time I worked there, I had to go and ask him for a power board, so eventually he put a plaque on it that said, Jeff Lemon Memorial <laughs> Power Board. <laughs> that's very John. I like it. <laughs> um, so thank you, Mark Peckham. Uh, Matt Whitehouse. Matt, I've got to be frank here. You haven't had a great last four years, mate. <laughs> there are a few things that could have been sorted out. That's all I'm saying. We appreciate your support. Thank you for coming on. But, you know, and I know things have been looking up a little bit lately, but, jeez, uh, keep an eye on things, all right? We don't want it to get to that stage again. James Mulcahy, a very good Irish name, which just made me then think of Ned Kelly. And then I thought of the talented guitarist Dan Kelly, who was in the Kelly gang with his older brother, Ned. But also, and I thought, hang on, it relates back to cricket because also in the Kelly gang was Joe Byrne, who obviously slightly changed his name and went on to play for Queensland. And then we come to a couple of ridiculously generous types. Matt Featherstone from uh, Cricket Brazil tipped in a, a very decent amount of contribution to help keep things going here. I very much appreciate that. Peter, James, Patrick Blondi and Josh Williams have also signed up for our... We've got like high tiers on the Patreon just for people who are like, you know what, fuck it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get more involved here. And if they're on those tiers for a while, then they get to tell us what to do with an episode of the show or potentially come on the show themselves if they want to do that. So I'm thinking that maybe Peter and Josh... Can maybe they can do something together? Maybe they can do a sort of breakfast radio spot on on our show. <laughs> maybe they can get their heads together now and work out what it is they want to do. You know, monkey in the big fella style. <laughs> um, on, on the final word, uh, that's going to make <laughs> that's going to make some of our listeners very happy. The monkey in the big fella reference. If you don't know what we're talking about, Warrnambool standard monkey in the big mm-hmm. fella. Why did they break up? If you can find mm-hmm. it out, let us know. Finalwarecricket at gmail They were a radio duo down there on the Victorian coast who became famous when I think Scott Morrison went on their show, didn't he? The the PM went and did a. It was on his on his like press dates for the day. Was an important interview with Monkey and the Big Fella. Um, I have looked into them, and you'll be pleased to know that Monkey is called Monkey because his last name is Monk. Very good, very clever, very original. Um, And the Big Fella is called that because he's a very large gentleman. He's very tall. And and big and thus is called the big fella. So that's the secret behind. Do you ever get uh, called? Do you ever get called the big fella? Because I mean, you're six foot five and you got mm. massive feet. I mean, you're the sort of guy who would yeah. get called the big fella. 
I, I've, I don't think I've ever been called the big fella, but I have been called big fella. No definite article. I'd get that, you know, a reasonable amount. You know, a big fella. Or a big, a fella, big fella. You know, I'm like, yes, yes, I am a big fella. Thank you. But it's better than being asked if I play basketball. No, I do not play basketball. I'm I, extremely I, I, um, lazy. I went to school with a guy in America who played basketball very well, uh, Played ended up playing professional basketball uh, later mm-hmm. in life. But this was like when we were in year 12 effectively and he just wore a t-shirt every day that had six foot ten written on the front so people would stop asking him mm-hmm. how tall he was just had yeah. it written there on the front of the- <laughs> it was quite clever my 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 mate nick had a similar shirt he wore to festivals it just said no i do not play basketball <laughs> <laughs> quite useful on occasion and we finish off with tane aikman who this is this is maybe a bit of a random step here but i just uh, I thought, this sounds like a nice New Zealand name, Tane Aikman. And then I started thinking about Hone Tuhare, who was a Maori poet who I like, and so I went and started reading his book again because I was, you know, supposed to be working on the show and started procrastinating. And I thought, you know what? I want to read your poem Aww. by uh, by Hone Tuhare. Uh, so this is called Himi, and Himi was like the nickname for one of his friends. No point now, my friend, in telling you my lady's name. She wished us well offered wheels which spun my son and me like comets through the lonely night. You would have called her Aroha. And when we picked up three young people who'd hitched their way from the 90-mile beach to be with you, I thought, yes, your mana holds, Himi. Your mana is love. And suddenly the night didn't seem lonely anymore. The car never played up at all, and after we'd given it a second gargle at the all-night Bowser, it just zoomed on, on, gulping easily into the gear changes up or down. Because you've been over this road many times before, Hemi, you'd know about the steady climb ahead of us still. But once in the tricky light, Tongariro lumbered briefly out of the clouds to give us the old up-you sign, which was real friendly. When we levelled off a bit at the top of the plateau, The engine heat couldn't keep the cold from coming in, the fog swamping thick and slushy and pressing whitely against tired eyeballs. Finally, when we'd eased ourselves over a couple of humps and down, down the winding metalled road to the river in Jerusalem, I knew things would be all right, glad that others from the mainland were arrowing towards the dawn like us. Joy for the brother-son chesting over the brim of the land and for the three young blokes flaked out in the back seat who would make it now, knowing that they were not called to witness some mysterious phenomenon of birth on a dung-littered floor of a stable, but come simply to call on a tired old mate in a tent laid out in a box with no money in the pocket, no fancy halo, no thump left in the old ticker. Very nice, Jeff. You've still got the knack for that. I like it. I also like the 90 Mile Beach reference, which suggests that despite being a, a New Zealand poet, they've been, uh, they've been hanging out in, uh, in Gippsland, which uh, we were talking about earlier in the show. There may be more than one 90 Mile Beach. There may be one might in be. New Zealand as there well. There might be. But I, um, thought, I thought of the one in Gippsland. Like the, I spent mm-hmm. a lot of time down in, in a place called Sea Spray as a kid, and it's uh, where some of my fondest childhood memories reside. Which brings us back to sale, which brings us back to the uh, pine tree plantations uh, that Mad Dog put in the ground so that he could make cricket bats in Australia without having to buy the wood from England. (laughs) Those 
bastards hoarding all the wood. And that brings us to the end of Julio Pledge, uh, a, <laughs> a long segment because I had kept not doing it for several months. But L- yeah, long, long but worthwhile. We might try and do that once a month rather than once every few months, uh, but I enjoyed it. Well done, Jeff. We have some revisits. Now, the first of those is for the number 1222. We had a good answer last week, a very good answer, mm-hmm. but it wasn't quite right. Yeah, this was Ollie Chorhan, and I talked about the number of overs that Sean Pollock bowled that nobody scored a run from, which was 1,222. Ollie said, that is arguably a more niche stat that shows off your prowess better <laughs> than the true answer. You got so bloody close, you mentioned the right stats column, the right man, so many times today, and you homed in on the right period of time when talking about the symmetry. That was the other thing is that involved symmetry. Your job has been made harder by the passing of time but I think you've got enough now well I do because the fact that we kept talking about the same person meant it had to be James Anderson who was also involved on that list of the the most maiden overs bowled in test cricket but it wasn't in that stats column it was uh, in another stats column I'd briefly mentioned which was test runs during the India series uh, with England at one point James Anderson made one run in the first test at Chennai, and thus took his career tally to 1,222 runs. He got a duck in the second innings. In the next match, he was naught not out and naught out. And so at that stage, he had played 221 innings in test cricket. So the symmetry, I assume, was 1-2-2-2 two, two, two runs mm. from 2-2-1 two, two, innings. Fantastic, Ollie. And I suppose we'll probably see uh, Anderson bat again pretty soon where he'll advance beyond one 2 2 Two and oh, well, he already has because he did in the fourth test. Match. That's oh, why I'm sorry. I was saying it, it, it so would be difficult. It was just yeah. it was dependent upon us picking it up at that time. I see. Nevertheless, yes, uh, yes, um, yeah. it, it works for me. Uh, and Anderson's about to hit some massive numbers in the next couple of weeks. He's on 994 first class wickets, I think. So mm-hmm. uh, that'll turn into a good nerd pledge in a couple of years from now. I'm sure when he hits 1,000. Right. The next revisit, Jeff was 124. Eric Pritchard, uh, we said some time ago, I think, that no one has played 124 one-day internationals, Mm -hmm. but we didn't quite get there. Well, I mean, it's true, and it's a good number, but Eric said that that was not what it is. But he said, I don't think Adam will have too much trouble with this one. I'm a little bit but not much older than Adam, and from the same part of the world, safe to say this contribution helped break a long drought. Yeah, he's right. It didn't take too long. It was the unbeaten 124 that Jamie Siddons made in the 1991 Sheffield Shield final. So I thought I'd just run through that because uh, it was a, yeah, I mean, I'm just a little bit too young to have appreciated at the time how important it was. But I mean, Victoria hadn't won the Shield since 1979-80. So a long drought where Western Australia and New South Wales really did dominate through the 80s. But uh, in 1990 uh, Victoria was top. New South Wales second, which meant the final was to be played at the MCG in the March of 91. And Jeff, as you remember uh, from that summer, half of the Southern Stand had been torn down by that stage. It was an unusual setting. Unfortunately, there's no Mm. YouTube of it. I I wanted to go back and have a look at some news reports, but no one has um, uploaded those. So if anybody has got some news reports saved or knows where they might be able to find them, I'd love to watch them because it was a great game of cricket. Ashes of 1991 would have been when that stand was coming down, was it? Yeah, that's right. So I think they got half of it down 
earlier in the summer. Simon O'Donnell mm. uh, hit a number of balls into the construction site in a one-day international. David Gower made 100 at Melbourne, if I recall correctly. Uh, and Bruce Reed took a bunch of wickets. But yeah, at the end of the season in the March, it's a great game of cricket. So New South Wales make 223 in the first innings after winning the toss. And then Victoria are all out for 119. So they're 104 runs behind uh, on the first innings. But then in the second dig, they, they turn the tables. New South Wales all out 134. Tony made 17.1 overs, 10 maidens, 5 for 25, which ended up being... Uh, very influential in the final analysis. Simon O'Donnell took three wickets. Paul Rifle took two. He took 49 for the season, the most in the country. And Damien Fleming had picked up four in the first, so a very strong bowling attack. That left Victoria with 239 runs to win, uh, and they were in strife uh, early on. They were two for 27 after Wayne Holsworth went bang, bang around lunchtime on, on, the, uh, on the third afternoon. But, but that was when Jamie Siddons, who was a real star, a young gun on the rise, joined Wayne Phillips, the other Wayne Phillips, so to speak, as he's mm. known. And uh, from two for 27, they got Victoria to two for 102 by the close of play on the third evening. And subsequently, Siddons has talked about not sleeping that night. I mean, it was such an important moment in his fledgling career. But it, he, he needn't have worried too much because he woke up the next morning and played one of the most memorable innings of his career. They put on an unbeaten 202. Victoria mm. uh, win the match and win the shield by eight wickets. Siddons won 24 not out from 205 balls. Unfortunately, Phillips was was nine runs short of his 100. He certainly deserved it, uh, given uh, how much of the heavy lifting he did alongside Jamie Siddons, who went on to say that, um, that it's his favourite memory uh, in first-class cricket. It was a hell of a career. 35 centuries, over 11,000 runs. He averaged 45. Unfortunately, he never played test cricket. He always ends up in those sort of 11s or composite 11s of mm. best players never to get a baggy green. He did play for Australia, though, one one-day international uh, in Pakistan in, in 1988 where he made 32 and never got another chance, sadly. And it was also his last game for the Vicks. He moved to South Australia uh, for the season of 91-92 where he played for the better part of another decade. And mm. it would be more than a decade before Victoria would win the Shield again. That was 2003-2004, which was the next time the MCG uh, was being redeveloped when I think from memory in 0304 the uh, the northern side of the ground the Olympics the Olympic stand mm. uh, there was a big hole there and and that that was uh, the symmetry between 1990-91 and, and 2003-04 which was noted at the time so that will be the 124 for Eric Pritchard I'm pretty sure well, it's very exciting when Wayne N. Phillips gets a Guernsey <laughs> ahead of Wayne B. Phillips. <laughs> we love a bit of that action. Uh, last revisit, Nick Dempsey, whose number we looked at uh, on the weekly show. So a quick turnaround from Nick, $3.65. Yeah, we said Shahid Afridi. What did we say about Shahid Afridi? I can't remember. Was it his test batting it was average? his batting average. Yeah. Right, yes. Okay, so Nick, Nick came straight back at us and gave us a clue. He said, look, he loved hearing about the great man Afridi, but 365 is the total number of runs scored in a series by this player, and I think you've spoken about them before. Yes, well, a few different players have done that, uh, but I'll give you one player who scored 365 runs in a series, Gundapa Vishwanath. <laughs> hey! It is Vishy Day on the final word. He did that in the England uh, series when India toured England in 72, was it, when they, they won over there famously, one mm. of their great overseas series victories with the aforementioned spin quartet 
playing a pivotal role. Um, aside from that, we've spoken before about David Steele making 365 runs, probably the most famous series haul of 365 when he came in against Jeff Thompson and Dennis Lilly in 1975 as an unlikely candidate to, to help blunt the incredibly fast, aggressive pace attack. Uh, so it could be to do with that. But, Nick, if it is, let us know because we'll, we'll come back to that if that's the case, given we have talked about it in some ways before. But someone else who we've mentioned before who made 365 in a series was Martin Crowe uh, in that series against Sri Lanka. When he made 299 in one innings, he made 30 and 36 in his other two hits to end up with 365 for the series, uh, which was also weirdly a drawn series uh, looking back at those games because the first test when Crow made the 299, he was just trying to bat Sri Lanka out of the match because New Zealand had got rolled for 176 in their first innings. And so in the second innings, he was just batting to make sure it was a draw, basically. And then in the second test... A little like that crazy India game in 1978, uh, Sri Lanka gets set 418 to win and they only ended up 74 runs short and six wickets down. So if they'd had more time, they still had Ranatunga at the crease, they might have been able to get there. The only other players I can think of who we've mentioned before who made 365 in a series are two who did it in Lost Ashes series. Lindsay Hassett did it in England in 1953 and Derek Randall, who somehow gets talked about on this show more than just about any other player, um, did the same in Australia in 82-83. I was trying to get Derek Randall's uh, phone number a couple of weeks ago for uh, as a favour to a friend. and I, you, I you, could, you could have just ended with the first part of that sentence. It <laughs> would have been perfect, perfectly in your areas. But I couldn't. I, all the connections yeah. I tried to link back through, for whatever reason, I, I couldn't get hold of it. So if you're listening and you've got mm. Derek Randall's phone number, no, no. <laughs> um, uh, but... <laughs> Yeah, you're right. I think he, he'd be on the podium for, for people we've mentioned most over the last 50 episodes. Uh, thanks, Nick Dempsey. Let us know whether we are right the second time around. We have some confirmations. Not as many as we normally would have. I don't know why. It's kind of funny. Some weeks we have heaps of confirmations or tons of revisits. Mm-hmm. This week, it's simply one. Brooke Quinn, 429. 429, 429, uh, because it was a, a dual intention on that number. Bill Ponsford made 429 for Victoria and Shane Warne took four for 29 in the World Cup semi-final. Uh, two Victorians who did things that were good that Brooke wanted us to talk about. You nailed it, Adam, he said. I will have to think up a new number. And you can do that. You can think up a new number if you've already had yours done. And if you hadn't had yours done, help us catch Jimmy. Catch Jimmy. Catch Jimmy. <laughs> yes, it keeps the wheels turning uh, here at Storytime Headquarters. Correspondence to finish as well. I like this note from... Anthony Radford, uh, Jeff, uh, he says that he always listens to our podcasts with three of his four kids, so the other of his children is at university. They have no interest in cricket history and they always get a bit shitty uh, when I listen to it in their company, which is why I always play it. <laughs> anyway, I submitted a Bannerman in March. A1 parenting, that's yeah. how you do it. <laughs> <laughs> so he submitted a Bannerman in March and as I was turning up to school to pick them up, the segment started. So I stopped the podcast and waited while they got their shit together from two different campuses and got in the car. After asking how their day was and being greeted by the usual grunts, I turned the podcast on and I had it timed perfectly. Having you both mention my name a few times, talk about furfies and prattle on about the Broadford Cricket Club for five minutes. 
the kids were awestruck. So now when I pick them up, they enthusiastically ask if today is cricket podcast day. I'm awaiting my next nerd pledge to do it to them again, which I think is lovely. So we've got a couple of, well, three converts in three of Anthony Radford's four kids who are now part of our little storytime community because we mentioned their dad on the show. So maybe he can pull a similar stunt this week. And, and if well, they're listening, no, don't, hello don't to you. Don't play them this one. Because if he plays them this one, they'll know. <laughs> you know, like they'll they'll understand um, that, that what's taken place. They'll understand the trick. Jeff, I think that's it. This has been another fun edition of Storytime. We've we've covered a lot of territory, as is the custom. Uh, and again, it's it's a milestone for us. Fifty shows, fifty Storytime episodes. Uh, it's mm-hmm. been a joy pulling it together. It wouldn't be possible to make this show, of course, unless people continue to. Um, contribute to our Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the final word we're six away from Jimmy that push and pull will hopefully continue through the summer help us overtake him perhaps before the next test match at Edgbaston next week that'd be fun I don't know how many wickets he'll take in the second innings but we'd be some mm. chance of reaching uh, Jimmy before they take the field next Thursday our usual round of thank yous to the Lord's Taverners for um, being with us for the vast majority of the time that we've been making story time uh, thank you to them visit lordstaverners.org and look in the show notes to see members of the final word community who are raising money for that wonderful organization to bad producer productions who look after us we are on their label but they edit our show twice a week and that is far more difficult than it may sound because we have lots of different moving parts lots of different starts and restarts and fuck ups and all the rest and dave collins is the man that makes us sound good jay Mueller and astrid edwards run the show there at bpp check out their other shows at badproducerproductions.com thanks to everybody who reviews and rates the show on itunes that makes a difference if you give us five stars and 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 you also uh, say something nice about us more people hear us and it gives us a better chance to remain up the top of the the itunes charts which is where i believe we are frankly you can you can give us five stars and write something mean if you want like as long as it, the five stars is the important thing. It's yes, five stars, one for each of the uh, thousand ways that you're dickheads. I mean, that's fine. That's fine. Yes, what it does do is the five stars means that uh, yeah, it just gets us into more feeds and it helps with the the charts. And we know the charts are bullshit, by the way. We're not under any misapprehension about how the charts work. But for whatever reason, we tend to be towards the top of those uh, when it comes to cricket podcasts. No one knows and that is a nice thing. No one has a clue. No I don't one, think Apple knows. I don't no, think yes. anyone knows. I think, I think it's a bit of potluck. But we like being towards the top uh, because it helps uh, more people hear the show and all the rest. Uh, and last but not least, uh, thanks to everybody for listening. And, Jeff, for the research you've done across the year, it is a hefty workload uh, making this show the, the second show a week. I mean, of course, we, we love making this anyway. But uh, mm-hmm. it, it, we couldn't do it unless – it wouldn't be worth doing it if we were just guessing or sort of throwing a number out there to, to – to be in keeping with the standard that we've set, we, we've got to do the hard yards and we love doing it. And uh, uh, and yes, it's been a lovely adventure and we've learned a lot. And I think that I'm far more nourished uh, as a more well-rounded cricket person for the stories mm. that we've um, dug around at for the last year. And, and hopefully you feel the same way listening to us. Yep, we can celebrate 50 and we can celebrate 100 when it comes out. We're not celebrating 150 though. <laughs> Final word story time. Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Have a nice weekend.